Thank you, Pastor John. It's always a challenge when the person who introduces you uses the exact same story that you are going to tell about how you ended up here today. <laughs> about five or six weeks ago, I happened to be in the building, and, and um, West Highland had graciously allowed us at, at Redeemer to use the fireplace area to film a video we, we were doing for some of our supporters, and I thought I'd pop down to Pastor John's office, and, and he told you the rest. I, I got started, and one of the challenges I have is that when I'm passionate about something, I like to keep talking about it and sharing about it and, and getting off my chest, and I felt uh, somewhat sorry for Pastor John afterwards because I believe he was working on one of his messages on Daniel when I walked in that morning. And I ended up taking, I think, a couple hours of his time. And his message that Sunday was, I think, a little bit shorter as a result. I think. You see what I did there, Pastor John? I used the word shorter and Pastor John's message in the same sentence. <laughs> but who am I to talk? He told me this morning, usually his messages are around 11 pages typed. He asked me what mine was, and I sheepishly looked away. It's about 22. So I had been sharing with him uh, how this series has resonated with me, and I just want to thank, take a moment to say thank you, Pastor John, for the powerful way uh, that you have allowed God to speak uh, through you and uh, through Jamie as well, who also shared in this series uh, from the book of Daniel. You know, it resonated me with, with me, in, especially in terms of the work we are doing at Redeemer University, the challenge of discipling the next generation to live out the love of Christ in an antagonistic age. This morning, I hope to share with you, as Pastor John indicated, how Daniel can give us encouragement and hope in how we can live in our context today as Christians. You see, because like Daniel in the exiles, I think that we too are strangers, that we are foreigners in our time and in our place. Like Daniel, we have a choice to make. Do we want to settle here permanently? Do we want to make this our permanent home? Or do we long to return to our true home? See, these two concepts are connected. They go together, living as strangers and longing for home. I think they characterize the way Daniel and his friends lived. I know it characterizes the work we are trying to do at Redeemer University. And I think, if I might be so bold, it should characterize how we should seek to live as God's people. So I want to start by talking about what it means, perhaps, to learn from Daniel and his friends to live as strangers. Have you ever been somewhere or been in a situation where you felt really out of place? A few years ago, a very generous and kind soul uh, gave a couple of Leafs tickets to me. Uh, and I decided to take my oldest son, Judah, and we got our Leafs jerseys on, and then we drove across the border into the United States to watch the Leafs play in Buffalo. Yeah. And it was fantastic. The Leafs won. It was wild. They scored a lot of goals. So did the other team. That's pretty familiar, right? So... We were there after the game, and I remember walking alongside. We took a little bit of extra time to enjoy the moment, and we walked out the mezzanine. We were seeking to go uh, the lower level, and there's a mezzanine above. And we were trying to get out the exit doors to get back to our vehicle. 
And there was a group of, of Sabres fans, a large number of them up on the mezzanine, and there were a couple of Leaf fans, and this was well ahead of us, and I saw them yelling at each other, and eventually a can was hurled down at the Leafs fans below. And there was this antagonism there, and I immediately felt for myself and my son, here we are, clearly identified as Leaf fans with a hostile Buffalo Sabre crowd. Feeling like strangers, expecting hostility for the identity that we clearly displayed. For some of you, that might, experience might be much stronger than what I had just at this one hockey game. Perhaps you recently moved to this area. Or maybe you're even new to Canada and have come from somewhere else. And that feeling of, of being in a different place, of being a stranger here, is, is still very sharp for you. See, for Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah and the other Jewish exiles, this sense of being strangers would certainly have stemmed, I think, from some difference in language and culture. But ultimately, I think the Jewish exiles were strangers and remain strangers because they remained focused on serving God. And I don't think it was any easy thing to live that way. And so I think the first thing they faced is they came to the understanding that they lived in a, in a way that was surrounded by temptation to lose sight of God. They were surrounded by temptation of all that Babylon had to offer. So if you do have your Bibles with you, I'm going to be jumping around a fair bit. I, I apologize for that. Um, but I, I'm going to kind of take us through, you know, skips and, and steps through Daniel a little bit, and then here and there to some other passages. But, and sometimes I'll just summarize, and hopefully it's been familiar to you from, from this series. But in Daniel chapter 1, already in verse 3, we learn that these are it's a pretty unique set uh, of people here that have come to Babylon. Uh, Daniel tells us that they are from the royal family in verse 3, and the nobility... In verse 4 of chapter 1, they were young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. And that the king set about to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. You see, Daniel and the other Jewish exiles did not have to remain strangers for long. They were learning the language and the culture. They were incorporated automatically by the new names they received into the religion. Of, of Babylon. And think about how tempting it must have been for them to simply accept that and assimilate into that culture. They would have been used to that kind of power and authority and, and wealth and comfort from their own experience in Judah. And so they're surrounded by this temptation to compromise. And we see this throughout, the, I think, throughout the whole book. You know, chapter 1 talks about the rich foods, the choice meats and wine of the king's table. In chapter 2 and chapter 4, do you remember Daniel's interpreting dreams? He's got this knowledge that no one else seems to have. Think of how he could have leveraged that for his own advancement and his own power. In chapter 3, uh, Pastor John's powerful message on the rhythmic pull and lure of Babylon. Remember that verse, uh, the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music. The rhythmic way that that came across, that spoke powerfully to me. What a temptation to compromise, to give in, to belong. In chapter 5, King Belshazzar offers Daniel rewards of gold and purple robes and power throughout the realm. And in chapter 6, Remember at the beginning of chapter 6, King Darius is literally thinking of making Daniel number two in the entire kingdom. All Daniel had to do was for 30 days pray to him. That's it. There are times when, boy, I have to look back and I've been in a busy period of my life and I've been overwhelmed with things and how many times have I prayed in the last 30 days? Sat down and really prayed. 
just for 30 days. And he could have been number two in the kingdom. And in chapter 10, we're reminded again of the material comforts that were available in an ongoing way. Choice foods, meats, wines, lotions, etc. See, Daniel and his friends were surrounded by things that could easily have become the focus of their work and their lives. Comfort, entertainment, wealth, and of course, power. It must have been so tempting for them to just compromise and join in. See, we live in a world today, I believe, where there is riches and comfort and entertainment beyond anything seen before in human history. It makes Babylon seem cold and barren and boring. And we are surrounded by similar temptations, including to power. Yes, even power. We are used to such great individual autonomy and, and control of our own lives, which is a form of power. So the, one of the questions I have been challenged with throughout this series, and I think one of the questions at Redeemer we try to challenge our students with in an ongoing way, and I think a question that we need to challenge ourselves with as believers is, are these things of our world today slowly becoming the central purpose of our lives? Would we cling to them? Would we make compromises to preserve them? See, Daniel and his friends in exile did not compromise. And this was a central thing that marked them off as strange, as strangers in that land. I think as a result, they were faced with a tremendous amount of hostility. The rejection of Babylon results in an anger towards them, a hostility, a sense that people want to undo them. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 13 has a, has a, a curious phrase, and it's repeated twice, that Nebuchadnezzar was furious and one of the verses says he was furious with rage. In chapter 6, we see administrators and magistrates backstabbing Daniel, trying to undo him and bring him down. Why? Because he's a stranger. He won't participate in the same schemes and purposes and values that they do. And they conspire to undo him. And in chapter 10, as we learned a few weeks ago, it wasn't only opposition from people, but the forces, the very forces of darkness were at work. Remember that verse, I think it was, it's verse 13. The prince of Persia resisted me, the messenger that was sent to help encourage Daniel. See, when we don't fall down and worship false gods, when we don't compromise, when we resist living for the idols of our age, we will be viewed as strange and different in the eyes of the world. I can tell you this is true in my work at Redeemer. When we seek to remain faithful to a Christian perspective in university education, people look, like when I'm in meetings in, in the post-secondary sector, it's a strange thing that we do that. And when we're different and strange, we may even face anger and hostility, and the darkness will seek to discourage us and will work against us just like it did with Daniel and his friends. But even in the middle of all this temptation and hostility, one of the things that has encouraged me is seeing how resolved Daniel and his friends were in their purpose, how resolved they were in their purpose. They knew that God had a plan and that he was unfolding his purpose in Babylon. Again, it starts right in chapter 1. Right? What happens when they're asked to participate 
in the choice meats and the, and the food from the king's table. It says in verse 8, Daniel resolved, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And I don't think this is about the food so much, right? It's more about eating and sharing the table with the king would have been symbolic in that culture and still in many cultures today of bonding, of commitment, of shared purpose. So Daniel is resolved not to indicate his shared purpose with the purposes of Babylon. In chapter 2, this is an amazing passage in verse 26, 27 through 30. Daniel again is resolved. And here he's resolved to resist the temptation to take credit for interpreting and knowing the dream. Verse 26 in chapter 2 says, Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Part of me wants to say, say yes. Think of all the accolades and the power and the wealth. Think of all the good you could do for the Jews and for God's plan. Just say yes. What does he say? No. No wise man, no enchanter, no magician or diviner can explain this to the truth. There is a God who reveals mysteries. And he repeats it later in verse 30. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else. I wonder what the astrologers and, and wise men thought. They must have thought what a fool Daniel was. They would have been itching to take all that credit to advance themselves in that way. And in chapter 3, we see the same thing with uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah that they are equally resolved to resist the temptations around them, to lose focus on God. They say they do not even need to defend themselves because they have a God who will defend them before the king. In chapter 5, Daniel rejects the promise of wealth. Do you remember the, the, the writing on the wall? Can you interpret the writing on the wall? This offer of the purple robe, much wealth and riches, much power, what does Daniel say? What does he say? Verse 17. You may keep your gifts and rewards for yourself or give them to someone else. And in chapter 6, even the other administrators and magistrates and wise men are forced to acknowledge the laser-like focus on God and his purpose and his plan in Daniel. What do they say in verse 5 of chapter 6? We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. We can't use power. We can't use wealth. We can't use the comforts of Babylon. None of that will appeal to him. We can't bring him down that way. He's focused on his God. And it's not like Daniel and his friends didn't have access to these comforts. They certainly used them, but they never became the purpose of their life was struck by, by those verses in chapter 10. For 21 days, I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips. I used no lotions. I'm not, a, I'm not a big lotions guy. What kind of lotions must these have been? This recalled to me, I, I think, I don't know how many of you remember uh, when Pastor John shared about uh, his love for essential oils. Was, do you remember that? Remember when Pastor John talked about that? Or was it Andrea's love for essential oils? Andrea's love for... <laughs> For me, this abstinence from meat is much more jarring than the lotions. How readily are we able to discern 
the purposes for which we live today. It seems so clear-cut in the book of Daniel, right? Well, that's obvious, but is it so simple? How easy would it be to give up our power, our autonomy over our everyday lives? The comforts that we have, the never-ending flow of entertainment right at our fingertips. If we were put in the same position as Daniel and his friends. Because I think in many ways we are in exact in the exact same position. We are foreigners and strangers in our time and place. Now the whole premise behind building a Christian university here in Ancaster was to disciple students into an understanding that they aren't living for their own sake. That they're not getting an education to advance themselves, their careers, their level of comfort and power. But they are living for a king and a coming kingdom. That their careers and callings are to be used to make that kingdom known. Just the same way Daniel and his friends did. For they are strangers as students who follow Christ. We are strangers. Jesus tells us in John chapter 15 that if we belong to the world, we would love it as our own. As it is, Jesus says, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Paul tells us in Philippians 20, I think that was shared before uh, the service, He's talking about his own earthly stature and status and wealth and, and the possibility he had for influence. And he says, it's all rubbish. It's garbage. Why? In verse 20, he tells us why. Because my citizenship is in here. My citizenship is in heaven. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. He doesn't say like foreigners and exiles or similar to foreigners. As foreigners, you are foreigners and exiles. You're strangers here. So how did they live as strangers? What can we learn from them that might help and encourage us today, that might encourage us in our own moment, where fear and division and social breakdown and war and confusion seems all around us? And in our own society, where Christians and Christianity are increasingly viewed with hostility and anger. Where, let's be honest, the world beckons us to take the safe and comfortable way of compromise so that we don't have to give up those things that mean so much to us. So above everything, I think it's clear that Daniel and his friends longed for home. And that that longing sustained them during this time of what must have been exceeding temptation and exceeding hostility. Longing for home helped them remain resolved in their purpose. They knew what they were missing. They were missing their home. They were missing Jerusalem. Not Jerusalem for the sake of the city itself, because it was more beautiful or had a better transportation system or whatever. Not Jerusalem because of the familiarity of the language and the culture but Jerusalem because they longed to rebuild the temple. They longed for the restored presence of God among his people. See, Babylon had separated them from the presence of God, from the Ark of the Covenant. And that symbolized the promise of salvation. Turn with me, if, if you will, for a moment to Psalm 137.
song of lament. Psalm 137. It's the Jewish exiles. Right? A psalm remembering and lamenting the lament of the Jewish people in exile. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Can you see the Babylonians witnessing the longing for home among the Jewish exiles? How it must have mystified them? How it must have boggled their minds? Jerusalem? Seriously? A city reduced to rubble? A city where only the poorest and lowest remain? What's wrong with Babylon? Haven't you noticed the riches all around you? Haven't you noticed the power of our kingdom? The arts, the culture, the beauty of the gardens, the works of art? And so they mock and torment the Jews in exile. Tell us about this God of yours. Let's hear your songs about him. Maybe then we'll know what makes him so great and so much better than all of the wealth and beauty that surrounds you here. The desire, the longing for Jerusalem, the longing to rebuild the temple, to experience once more the covenant promise of God, this allowed Daniel and the exiles to press onward, to remain resolved. It's the same longing that we want to build in our students at Redeemer, the same resolve. It's the same longing and resolve that should characterize us as strangers today, strangers who follow Christ. And isn't that exactly how Paul describes his situation in chapter 3 of Philippians? Where he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I press on toward the goal to win the prize. What's the prize? It's eternal life with Jesus. It's being forever in God's presence. So how do we do this? How do we forget what is behind and press toward the goal? I think first we learn from Daniel that we must be committed to prayer. Prayer is a way we commune with God. It's how we explicitly focus on spending time with Him. Do you notice during the pandemic, um, when we missed uh, our families or we had a Christmas gathering, people would do this over Zoom. Did any of you do that? Did you do that over Zoom? Did you have any get-togethers on Zoom at all? Nobody in here had any? So, okay, there we go. Yeah, we wanted to somehow be in people's presence when we missed them. We wanted to take some time to be with them in some way. You know, married couples often do this. They have a date night. Why do they have a date night? You're home together. Why do you have a date night? Because you have kids and you've got bills and you've got jobs. You've got everything else. You, you might be around each other, but you really don't have any presence with each other. In fact, Anna and I are overdue for a date night. So if you have any volunteers that want to come and take our kids, let me know after the service. 
See, in Daniel, we repeatedly see a desire, a need to spend time with the one whose presence they miss, whose presence they long for. Remember that, those verses in chapter 6. King, King Darius issues this proclamation, everybody must pray to me. And what does it say there? It says, Daniel kept on praying to God. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Throughout the book, prayer is present at every turn. Living as aliens and strangers, as exiles in the world around us, we need to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5 or 17 says we should pray continually or without ceasing. The second thing I think that characterized Daniel and his friends as they longed for home was that they were grounded in knowledge. Daniel and his friends remained rooted in the knowledge of God and in the scriptures and in seeking understanding of his work in the world. This is odd, right? If we, if we just take a step back and think about this. At the end of chapter 1 in Daniel, I think it's in verse 20, there's this amazing verse. Right? Like after they go through this period of training, and the king um, questions them, it says this in verse 20, in every matter of wisdom, in every matter, every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them to be a little bit smart, a bit more, a bit better, 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. These guys were smart. They knew their stuff. They probably had three PhDs, if you would put it in today's terms. And yet, that is not the knowledge that mattered most to them. Doesn't that strike you? They knew so much, and yet, what do we see throughout the book? What mattered most to them was God's plans and His purposes as He revealed them. And they continued to humble themselves and seek His will. It's clear throughout the whole book. In, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. I understood the desolation of Jerusalem. We see the same firm knowledge at work in Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in chapter 3. Bow down, you'll go in the fiery furnace. And what do they say? If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us. But even if he does not, we trust in him. They were rooted in their knowledge of who God was and how they could trust him and his plans for their lives. But they also knew that God was the source of all truth and knowledge. And this is something that is so lost in our day. It's, this is something where I, I just believe the purpose for a Christian university like Redeemer and other Christian education institutions is so important. We've lost our understanding of where knowledge comes from. I actually have a whole separate lecture on this, Pastor John, maybe for another day. But this is such an important uh, influence on, on Christians today in our culture. We've lost the understanding of where knowledge and truth actually comes from. Remember Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, where the, the demonic forces are, are fighting against the, the angelic support coming for Daniel? In chapter 10, verse 12, it says this. The messenger says, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God. Ten times smarter than anyone else. And he's setting himself with humility before God to seek understanding. 
You see, the knowledge of Babylon was not the knowledge Daniel and his friends turned to or rely on. It doesn't mean it was worthless. It doesn't mean they didn't use it. Certainly they did. But they knew that the knowledge systems of this world are broken and fallible and incomplete. Whether it's scientific rationalism or modernism or postmodernism, all of them are incomplete, all of them are broken, all of them are tainted by sin. And what we see through Daniel and his friends is that knowledge is spiritually mediated. That when we seek knowledge, when we learn, something spiritual is happening. I think we've lost this as Christians. Look at what Daniel writes in chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. He, God, changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. We have a major knowledge problem in our world today. There is so little humility in the sharing of opinions and studies and ideas. In the categorical dismissal of the views of others. And as Christians too, we have forgotten the humility of understanding that the knowledge of this world is imperfect. And what happens? What happens when we forget that? So many Christians get all caught up on the issues of the day and get caught up in their own purposes and goals in the here and now, taking sides. And they seem to forget the cosmic story of God's work in the world. You know, it's why I'm so passionate about Christian education. Not just at Redeemer, but at all levels. Grounding followers of Jesus in a spiritual understanding of knowledge is critical. Because there is no study, no book, no opinion, no theory, no philosophy that we can ground ourselves in as our base starting point for understanding the world and ourselves other than the story of God's work in the world. Anything else is false. And as followers of Christ, we must keep in step with the Spirit as we learn and discern. We must be rooted in God's unfolding story of redemption when we don't, we get absorbed into all kinds of other stories and purposes. And soon we end up more committed to the home we are in and the various movements to change things in the here and now than we're committed to the home that Jesus calls us to and bringing others there with us. So being committed in prayer and grounded in knowledge helped Daniel and his friends to also be peaceful in response. Peaceful in response to the hostility and the injustice and the paganism that came at them from every side. How, did they, how must they have felt crushed by Babylon? When Babylon set up false gods, restricted their freedoms, destroyed their homeland, and generally behaved in a despotic and tyrannical manner. Whether it was facing the lion's den or the fiery furnace, their response was amazingly always peaceful. I don't mean it was kind. It was peaceful. It was convicted. It was clear. It was not violent or angry. See the contrast there with Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar was furious with rage. Daniel and his friends are calm and convicted and peaceful. 
We live in a world today where anger and outrage is not only a common response, I think, unfortunately, it's increasingly a valued and expected response. Social media is awash with self-righteous anger. And look, I don't, I don't stand here before you claiming to be innocent. I read things and it makes me feel angry. I want, that's not just something must be done. I better share this, my view and my anger over this issue. When is the last time you've read an angry Facebook post um, and it convinced you that you're now going to totally change your position and share the position of the other person? I have to remind myself and check myself and remind myself that God is at work, that he has a plan, that he's prepared a better place for me, and that I need to long for that place. You see, an angry response doesn't point others toward God, but a peaceful response can. Look at how God used uh, the peaceful response of Daniel and his friends throughout this book. It's dripping from every chapter. Have you noticed it throughout the series? In chapter 1, the chief court official, he stands back amazed at what God did. All they ate was vegetables. I agreed with them. That's horrible. But look what happens to them. Look at chapter 2 and 3 and 4. Nebuchadnezzar, all praise goes to the God of Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, Hananiah, Darius. All praise goes to the God of Daniel. Belshazzar acknowledges the supremacy and power of Daniel's God. What an amazing testimony of how God works through the sin and brokenness of this world. And today, one of the things that concerns me so much in, in young people today and in students is they think that they should be taking the place of God in their anger and outrage, and they should be the ones who self-righteously declare who's bad, who should be judged, what should be changed. And I think all of us have, as Christians have the same temptation in this infodemic culture in which we live today. You see, God is righteous. He is right to be angry, but we shouldn't take his place in that anger. How did they find this peace? How did they find the ability to live in peace? You know, I don't imagine that they stood without fear before this hostility, that their legs didn't shake as they thought about the consequences, but they were confident of the outcome. They were confident of the outcome. I would be terrified facing starving lions or a blazing furnace. But I don't imagine the backstabbing, the backstabbing and undermining of the other administrators made life easy for them either. It must have been a very difficult time in so many ways. But they were confident that God was sovereign over all and that his will would be done. That God would return his people. The temple would be rebuilt. They had confidence in that outcome. He would restore the covenant, his covenant presence. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. I'm going to read some verses there. So uh, it was read before the service, or sorry, it was read during the time of worship before I came up. I want to start in Hebrews 11, but I want to go a bit earlier to, to, than what was read. I want to turn and, and begin at verse 13. So this is the story of the faith heroes of the Old Testament. And it interrupts about halfway through. And in verse 13, it says this, All these people were living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. 
they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And then skip down to verse 32. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames. How can we read that as anything but a reference to Daniel and his friends? And in verse 39, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us. See, as we have seen throughout the series on Daniel, there is so much to learn from these exiles. We too live in an antagonistic age with so much that lures us and tempts us and is hostile to us. But like Daniel and his friends, we can be strengthened as we long for our eternal home by being committed to prayer, by being grounded in our knowledge of God, being peaceful and humble in response to the challenges we face, and being confident of the outcome. And we have one more thing. Did you catch that in verse 39? These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. See, unlike Daniel, we've received what's been promised. We've seen Jesus. We have his miracles and his teaching. We have his victory over death on the cross. We have the hope of his resurrection. Daniel and his friends and the other heroes of faith, they had the promise of that. They looked toward it. We haven't. They persevered. And that's why chapter 12 continues the way it does in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by Daniel and Azariah and Hananiah and Mishael, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance with our eyes fixed on Jesus. See, we live as strangers longing for home. But not only can we look to Daniel and his friends, we can look at the perfect life of Jesus and take comfort and strength as we long for his return. Two quick uh, takeaways. Things that I've thought about or reflected on during the series that have struck me. You know, Daniel uses the words rebellion and, and abomination and desolation a lot, and I've been wrestling with, with what this all means and how this fits. He talks about the desolation of Jerusalem for 70 years. What did he mean by that? There were certainly people living there. I think what Daniel was talking about was that in the rebelliousness of the Jewish people, God punished them by separating them from his presence, by removing them from Jerusalem in the temple. See, throughout the Bible, the word desolate is used to refer almost always to places without life, without hope, without the possibility of flourishing. There's nothing there. Just like Israel and just like Judah, our rebellion and our sin condemns us to what? To separation from God. To being separate from his presence. To a stifling emptiness and absence of his love. It's a desolation. 
And Daniel is very specific about an abomination that causes desolation. The specific physical act of Antiochus' sacrifice to Zeus. Literally, the worship of another god at the heart of the temple. The heart of God's dwelling place. So easy for us to look at that and, and, and judge Antiochus. But how easy is it for us to each be our own Antiochus today? For where is God's temple today? Isn't it us? Isn't it us collectively? 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, Don't you know that yourselves are God's temple? That God's spirit dwells in the midst of you? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So when we put other idols in the center of our hearts, when we replace God's presence there with the worship of other things and other purposes, whether that's entertainment, whether it's our own political views and desires, whether it's our own self-righteousness, whether it's power or wealth, or whether it's, it's, the, it's sins that drag us down like alcohol and lust, whatever it is, we nudge God out of the center of his home, which is our hearts. And we replace him with other things that will leave us feeling empty and hopeless and desolate. You know, I fail so often to protect this temple that I can become very discouraged. So many other things crowd into my life. We fight against the sin that entangles us, but entangled we become anyways. But we don't have to despair because we know we are secure in Christ's victory. Some of you may have noticed I avoided the hardest verses of Psalm 137, but let's just go back there and, and let's deal with them anyway. Psalm 137. Beginning in verse 7, the, the final verses of this psalm say this. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants, dashes them on the rocks. There's some hard verses. I grew up in a church that, that sang the psalms, and you would sing this psalm, and I would, what? What are we singing? Can God really find happiness and joy in dashing infants? That's a really a difficult question. I would suggest that if you want the answer to that, you email Pastor John after the service. But look at what this psalm is saying. Edom and Babylon, these are what separates the Jews from God's presence. This is what destroys the temple and removes them from the land where God dwells. But God will have the victory. And for us today, we know this psalm to be true. The things that separate us from God, the Edoms and Babylons, the sin and death that separates us is defeated. And all the things that Babylon and Edom give birth to, the pain and brokenness of our lives, the pain and brokenness of our world, the deceitfulness of our flesh, it's all defeated. It's dashed against the rocks. The head of the serpent's been crushed. We're secure in that victory. Colossians 2 says God has made us alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. He canceled the charge. He disarmed the authorities and powers and made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. 
This is the hope and victory that animates the church. This is what animates the work we do at, we do at Redeemer. Preparing students to live as strangers, working for the good of those around us like Daniel and his friends, but serving a king and a kingdom who is coming but is not here yet. So many of you uh, have told me uh, how you pray for Redeemer and uh, you pray for its students. And I want you to know that we are so grateful for that prayer support. It is so needed today. We face increasing pressure to bow to the idols of our time. So thank you, and please continue to pray. Pray that we prepare well the next generation to walk through the fiery flames, to resist the antagonism of this age, and to point others to the victory we have in Jesus. To you, me, we are secure in that victory, no matter how many times we mess up. When we turn to him, he forgives us. And then he reminds us, I have a home ready for you, where there will be no more tears, no more viruses, no more division, no more wars and bombs and nuclear weapons, but a home where all things will be made new. Let's, with Daniel and his friends, long for that day.